0: Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine,
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FNS Unplugged. I'm one of your four co-hosts, Pietro Bordletto. The other three, and really kind of the rock of the show, Dalon James, Molly Cornfield, and Blake Evans, are also with me. Guys, how are all of you?
2: Doing well. Great to be with you.
3: Good afternoon, everyone. Pleasure, as always, to see your faces.
4: Hi, guys. Good to see you.
1: And Blake does still not understand that this is an audio-only podcast. He thinks we're broadcasting live. But anyway, here we are. And we got some good science for you from the reports, the science, the reviews, and the consider this section of fertility and sterility. I never get to go first, but when I do, it probably is for good reason. I have a cool article looking at the nature of embryonic mosaicism across the female age spectrum. I'm always kind of intrigued by an article that has the nature of something. It typically means we're about to find out something cool or understand a little bit more about a topic that we know a little bit about but this was an analysis of 21,000 pgta cycles by first author Abigail Armstrong and senior author Molly Quinn if you've been paying attention to the field of art you know that our understanding of the reproductive potential of mosaic embryos has changed pretty dramatically in the last few years small papers like vod at all infertility and sterility have really kind of opened up lots of conversations about How we view them, what do we tell patients, do we discard them, do we transfer them, and what happens when we do. Um, We've really evolved from simply acknowledging that it exists to reporting them and then most recently starting to transfer them. And we're all actively in this, how do we counsel patients with mosaic embryos phase of practice, and I think this paper is nice in that it adds to the storage bin of data that we should all be aware of when we're faced with this clinical scenario. These authors looked at 86,000 embryos from over 17,000 patients that underwent PGTA on a next-generation sequencing platform, and they sought to see how the age affected the PGTA testing results. They did the normal classification. Are these euploid? Are these aneuploid? Or are these mosaic? And when they talked about mosaic embryos, they broke them down into low-level mosaic and high-level mosaic. Low-level defined as 20 to 40%, high-level defined as 40 to 80% above 80 or below 20 was either euploid or aneuploid, respectively. And if you had a mosaic, they talked about the type of error, single segmental, complex segmental, single chromosome, or complex abnormal. And across all of these embryos tested, about 44% of them were euploid, 40% of them were aneuploid, and 15.8% of them were mosaic. Both low-level and high-level mosaicism were more prevalent among younger patients. And of all mosaic embryos, the youngest age cohort, the under age 35, had the highest proportion of these single and complex segmental mosaics, whereas those aged over 42 had the highest single whole chromosome and complex abnormal mosaicism rates. This makes sense physiologically. We know that young oocytes are less likely to cause meiotic non-disjunction. And the authors postulate that the single whole chromosome or the complex abnormal mosaic embryos are more common at advanced ages due to potentially having originated as aneuploid embryos initially that underwent some degree of partial self-correction by cell death. Of course, this is a hypothesis only. The paper doesn't talk about the etiology. And I think my kind of Biggest and most helpful takeaway point here for patients is that a diagnosis of mosaic embryo in a previous cycle did not increase your odds of having more mosaic embryos in a subsequent cycle. And that jives with what I tell patients and what we've seen in fertility and sterility that if you had three embryos to test and they were all aneuploid, it doesn't mean you're destined to have all aneuploid embryos every time you make new embryos. We're shuffling the deck. We're getting a new deck of cards. These are new eggs each cycle. So you're, the past is not prologue. I don't know if I use that saying correctly. That's probably wrong idioms. But you're not destined to have the same outcome when it comes to PGTA results in future cycles. And that's true certainly for mosaics based on this data. Now, I think the question I want to ask Molly, Blake, and daylon In the PGA testing that you guys are doing at your centers, are you getting mosaics reported? And if so, are you getting the different kinds of mosaics being reported? Um, And what are you doing with them? What are you telling your patients?
3: Yeah, this is always um, a difficult issue too, especially in patients who, you know, in general, if they're less than 35, never had a pregnancy loss, for example, just throwing this situation out there, do you even bother doing PGT? Well, of course, you know, all of the data may not reflect improvements in live birth rates with regard to that, but still a lot of patients are going to do it. um, And patients just want to do it. So you get a lot of these mosaic results that you may not have otherwise even known about that could be very well self-correct and lead to a pregnancy without even having the complications or confusion along the way. So, you know, when we have this Come about. We usually recommend to patients seeing genetic counseling, talking with them about the. Even though we counsel them as well, but going over specifically, here's the chromosome that it's saying is uh, mosaic. Here's the possible outcomes that could occur. Very well could lead to a pregnancy, could lead to a live birth, completely normal child. But it's also possible that won't happen. So we haven't seen genetic counseling after being counseled, and and this is usually we'll have this embryo as kind of the last resort they have other embryos to transfer of course we're going to want to do that before this one but that's typically what we do we only consider transferring the low level mosaics for the most part high level mosaics we typically do not when i was in fellowship the reporting and i know some clinics do this as well but reporting is a little different for where i was in fellowship they would either just say normal or abnormal And the low-level mosaics are typically lumped into normal for the most part, depending on the degree of mosaicism. So, But now we're having where we reported as high-level, low-level segmental, so it makes it a little bit more complex, and so that's typically how we handle it.
4: I thought a real strength of this paper was that they all went through the same lab and they all use next-generation sequencing. We do have low-level and high-level mosaic at our lab, but I would say that the company that we use may interpret that and define that differently from the company that's in this study.
1: Dale, Cornell always did something interesting that I kind of liked and wanted your comments on, is that they reported on their PGTA report and uniquely Cornell did its own PGTA in-house, did not involve outside testing laboratories they reported exactly what the chromosomal makeup of each embryo was and would categorize it as proceed with embryo transfer for euploids embryo transfer with caution for mosaic embryos and would report out the exact amount of mosaicism and what they're seeing that's giving the mosaic report and then the no embryo transfer for the aneuploid results and i always thought the embryo transfer with caution was always kind of prescient and ahead of its time a little bit that we acknowledge that there's probably some reproductive potential here as long as the patients are well counseled and you use it in the right clinical scenario.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I would agree with you there that perhaps a bit ahead of its time as a center, but I will say, and this is no fault to Cornell or anyone, that I think that that kind of nuanced position can be unclear uh, for a patient and the fact that there's no standard that's like set nationally can be confusing I think for and of course I don't practice but for mice but I bet it's confusing for some docs as well as patients and I I'm just confused by the idea from the outside that like you could get some counseling in one place and then if if you're really motivated and you have no other options that you just go find get counsel somewhere else where, where they're more permissive I think that it's just a you know, a a question of, uh, as the the resolution of these assays increases and the amount of information we have about embryos gets more and more and and better, I think that we're empowered to make really informed decisions. But I just wonder about whether or not uh, there will be a, a kind of global standard that ought to be set so that there can be some consistency between groups.
3: I think as more and more data are coming out, a lot more people are as you mentioned Dale on the more permissive so to speak or we just we have more information knowing that the outcomes of these mosaic embryos very well could be a normal pregnancy so as more and more data mount people are more comfortable with that idea whereas you know 5 10 years ago that may not have been the case at all so it is becoming more and more common but you're right it is quite a confusing topic for both patients and providers alike and this could eat up several, several minutes, an entire consultation in and of itself, talking to a patient about mosaicism, but it is, it's complicated.
1: There's also some nuance to it, depending on where you're practicing. And I think I only appreciated this stale on after I left New York and came to Boston IVF. In a mandated state, the insurers kind of put some guardrails on what you're able to do. And if you have a genetically tested normal embryo, that's good quality, you have to use it Before you they'll allow you to make more embryos. And sometimes purposefully choosing or not choosing a lab that reports mosaicism or doesn't report mosaicism, sometimes it puts some handcuffs on you and make you have to do something that you think is not in the patient's best interest or something that the patient doesn't want to do just to kind of proceed with ART coverage. So there's there's definitely some nuance to this, depending on how patients are accessing their IVF cycle, who's paying for it and, and where it's happening that I didn't appreciate.
2: Well, that's a a pretty good segue to my story, speaking of aneuploidy, uh, ripe for disruption, I think we we could consider it based on uh, that conversation, and you know, while the reproductive technologies take many forms and the the it's very nuanced the outcome is relatively binary right live birth or not and in the relatively young field of ART the approaches to maximizing a chance of positive outcome they've evolved considerably i mean we kind of just alluded to it the understanding and application knowledge is constantly evolving um and uh in the current generation of ART single embryo transfer is preferred, uh, of course, if not mandated, and selecting the right embryo for transfer from a cohort of embryos is critical. Uh, The standard for embryo selection these days is PGTA. Um, In in early days, PGTA PGTA, uh, involved biopsy of one or two blastomers from a cleavage stage embryo, and this was associated with real reduction of the quality of embryos, also a lot of diagnostic errors because there wasn't that much material to begin with. So pivot. Uh, nowadays, multiple trophectoderm cells are extracted as uniform standard by, by and large um, from blastocysts uh, that are an extended culture, and that improves diagnostic precision. But there still remains this fundamental limitation of PGT that we just discussed at length like, mosaicism, particularly when trophectoderm is known to have a, a higher mutational burden than inner cell mass cells. Also, in the present and in the near future i think we're a kind of retail ivf uh, grows to meet demand uh, the specialized equipment expertise required for pgta is a bottleneck and a limitation so how do we address this well uh if you're like the kids these days you don't you just uh fire up the chat gpt and it takes care of your history paper for you while you take a nap but seriously everywhere you look nowadays our ability to glean actionable uh, information from seemingly uh, inscrutable phenomena are being augmented by AI. Here, I'm sharing a story from first author Elena Paya and senior author Marcos Meseguer uh, at the Instituto de Investigación y Innovación en Bioingeniera in Valencia, Spain.
1: Wow, uh, I, I, I'm hearing that we need to do a Spanish language podcast. Oh man, just, just stay straight on. We can do a
2: whole episode as long as i have a, a very tight script por favor continua dr james Absolutamente. No. I'm over not even there trying. in valencia spain they're taking us back to the future by applying ai to the most basic and fundamental predictor of embryo embryo quality that we know and that's morphology of course this is not the first study to leverage AI toward embryo scoring it's not going to be the last but I think we got to be paying attention to every one of these stories because the capabilities evolve so quickly uh, and if the experience with chat gpt goes to show us anything there's a tipping point that comes along when those capabilities suddenly become really profound the valencia group here employed 1151 cycles in which embryos were cultured continuously in the embryoscope until blastocyst stage before undergoing PGTA. Uh, The breakdown of these were about 57% aneuploid and 43% euploid. And they took a single frame from each hour of embryo culture, from hours 10 to 115 hours post-insemination. So that's 105 frames um, that they used as an input for this deep learning model. And the model extracted features uh, from these frames, analyzed uh, the temporal relationships between those features, and then incorporated these values into a training set to enable prediction of euploidy. Um, it's actually a lot more complicated than that, but that you know kind of messy synthesis that I just put there, that's the best I could do to understand it. So I invite you guys all to take a look. But uh, of the many models that they developed and tested, they ultimately identified one that had a positive predictive value of So pretty solid. They acknowledge that the generalizability of the model is limited in its current iteration because all the training data was derived from embryos at this single center. So you'd want to incorporate data from a lot of other centers, but it's all within the capabilities of this paradigm that they've set up. And for me, the studies are really difficult to parse, all these AI-type studies, because Partly, as I just alluded to, because I'm like an imbecile when it comes to computer science, but more because there's this component to the work where you don't even really know what the model is doing or how. Some of these AI programs, they give you a result and you don't know how they got there. As a scientist who has had the primacy of mechanism pounded into my fabric for my entire professional life, I find these magic A.I. boxes to be a little bit disconcerting, but I guess I can't argue with the clinical utility of a magic box that gets to the right answer four times out of five, uh, particularly given the potential for non-invasive and cheap embryo diagnostics like this to, quote unquote, democratize uh, ART in in a future of of, uh, Great demand. So I don't know, guys. You hear about AI stuff in in your life, at home, socially all the time. AI in medicine now is becoming increasingly prevalent. What's your guys' take uh, on its use and application in ART?
1: I'm jazzed up about it if it makes us manipulate embryos less. And I think if we can really move away from trophectoderm biopsy, which the minute you see it done, you're like, oh, my God, this can't be good for an embryo. If I could help prioritize embryos for transfer, not select an embryo for transfer, if that does better than 50-50, I'm game for that. If it can help me tip the odds in a patient's favor, avoid embryo micromanipulation, avoid potentially even having to freeze an embryo, I get that number to day five with a little bit more information that's going to help me say, I think this one's going to be a little bit better than that one. Let's go ahead and transfer this one. I'm game. But as long as it's built on a foundation, like you said, of good data, good science, because we've done it the wrong way around in this field for too many years where we've come up with a great idea and then try to come up with the data to prove that it actually does what we think it does, (laughs) ERA. But I think it would be a welcome addition for patients and for clinicians to have a prioritization strategy.
4: I was also really excited about the potential to select the right embryo for or the best potential embryo for a fresh transfer. And I think they have to scale this up. They should use multiple centers. Uh, one limitation was that they use assisted hatching on day three. So find some centers that don't do that. And I think I agree with Pietro. We'd still be combining it with other factors and obviously would choose the highest quality embryo by our usual scoring criteria. But I think this is a really exciting tool.
3: So what's it going to take for us to be okay with moving forward with this in our clinic? I mean, it sounds really cool conceptually. It'd be fantastic. At what point are we going to say, yeah, this is a really cool concept, but then we never do it?
1: It's going to take people having a couple hundred thousand dollars lying around to update their benchtop incubators to time-lapse imaging-based incubation. Very few centers, I think, have kind of bought into the concept wholeheartedly. I know Cornell certainly has for a long time. And people have kind of criticized that approach, but most IVF centers don't use time-lapse photography for embryo incubation and are using traditional benchtop incubators where you take the embryo out and you assess it at very predefined time points. I think that's the major hurdle for adopting stuff like this that is a bit more avant-garde and you'd like to see more research of. It's why we only see it at single centers. It's why you kind of see the same cast of characters publishing in this space is because their clinic spent the money, bought the incubators, and now they're trying to see if it's actually worth all the expense. I challenge you, Blake Evans, to ask your lab director if they've got a couple hundred thousand dollars lying around to follow this thread of a single retrospective study in FNS science.
3: Ours is wanting to, I will say. I mean, ours is she's wanting to get on board with it. Uh we'll see. Maybe in the future I'll let you know. We'll we'll circle back in about a year, see if we've done it.
2: Well, you guys are missing the huge part of the sell here is that you get you make that initial investment, upfront cost, and then you save a ton of money on getting rid of all those experts on the back end. I mean,
1: that is one argument that people have made. It's just less time intensive to monitor an embryo in a non-invasive fashion particularly if you have automated image labeling and you kind of have all the work done on the back end to to do the selection to do the grading to do the prioritization to put together a report the embryologist really becomes a air traffic controller rather than the person pulling the actual airplane out to the tarmac which is very much i think the state of embryology right now you're still doing a lot of heavy lifting
3: that was a great analogy
1: Thank you. I really like that one.
3: Yeah, I'm impressed.
1: All right, let's pivot away from air traffic control analogies and go over to the consider this section. Molly, you have an article that kind of resonated with you. I'd love to hear what you think about it.
4: Thank you, Pietro. So this month's Consider This article is entitled Subsidies and Reimbursement of Medical Fees, Revisiting the Old Concept of Egg-Sharing Donation in Elective Egg Freezing by authors Alexis Hengbun Chin, Ningyu Sun, and Gao Qingtong. The authors open their article by describing that two parallel trends are occurring in the world of reproductive medicine. There's an increased demand for donated oocytes concurrent with an increase in fertility preservation for age-related fertility decline. The authors are using these two trends to highlight the potential for surplus oocytes from fertility preservation to be donated to interested recipients. Put simply, people undergoing egg freezing, either to preserve their own fertility or to donate to another person, can choose to donate half their eggs and freeze the other half. So kind of kill two birds with one stone. The authors discuss different financial models for this process and review some of the usual recommendations for someone undergoing oocyte donation, including psychosocial screening and discussing loss of anonymity. The authors also discuss some of the ethical issues arising with this, many of which are pretty similar to what we're already talking about with gamete donation arrangements and which the ASRM Ethics Committee opinions uh, discuss in a little bit more depth. So while I think a broader discussion and conversation today around combining OSI donation with OSI cryopreservation is a great thing to talk about, there are some points in the article that I just really wanted to address first. So the authors propose that an intended parent or a recipient should not have the ability to access personal attributes of prospective donors and note that instead, recipients should be restricted to choosing donors with similar physical attributes to themselves. I strongly disagreed with this statement and felt it was pretty contradictory to a lot of our ethical principles that are so important, especially in reproductive medicine. Patient autonomy, reproductive liberty, all just so critical to what we do. The author's concern in this section really extends beyond donation of additional oocytes during cryopreservation, which is what they start talking about, and it really can refer to issues around gamete donation just in general. Some of my patients may preferentially choose donors with certain personal or physical attributes for their family building within the really significant constraints they're facing of a really limited number of donors that they get to choose from. And a physician or a regulatory body, as is suggested by the authors, should not decide what those traits should be on their behalf and really restrict our patient's reproductive choice in this way. I can't imagine saying to my patient, hey, this donor shares your passion for jazz music. I know you're super interested in them, but they have brown eyes and you have blue eyes, so you just can't work with them. There is an existing ESRM Ethics Committee opinion, as I mentioned, on financial compensation of oocyte donors, and it does address oocyte sharing, specifically for surplus oocytes in an intended IVF cycle. So I anticipate future committee opinions will address specifically the scenario of oocyte donation with concurrent planned oocyte cryopreservation as well, and we just haven't covered that yet. There are a couple uh, companies that seem to be facilitating this process, and I even spent some time looking at their websites while thinking about our recording today, and I can see why it can be appealing for donors and for recipients. In terms of how I think about this in my clinical practice, I have some thoughts on donation combined with cryopreservation. So while for an oocyte donor, especially one with prior successful cycles, we usually have surplus embryos, and this may make sense to keep some oocytes for possible future use. For my patients presenting specifically for cryopreservation, they're usually a little bit older. They usually have lower ovarian reserve than someone who was approved and selected as an oocyte donor. And so for that patient, seeing me specifically because they want to preserve their oocytes, I really want to maximize their chance of future life birth. And I'm less likely to really encourage or support them donating their oocytes before they've completed family building themselves. Although I can totally imagine why a reduced cost or a subsidized cycle with split donation may be really attractive to an individual. So what do you guys think? Thoughts or comments on this article specifically, some of those ethical issues and questions we talked about, or more broadly, thoughts on combining oocyte donation and cryopreservation.
2: Can I just ask here, I mean, what the heck does surplus even mean? How much is enough? If it's me, I want them all.
1: That's probably issue number one, Daylon. What's enough for you is probably different than what's enough for Molly. And we know Blake is insatiable, so he probably wants everything plus a little bit more yep we all have a different definition and sure you can put some math into some calculator that will spit out a number but when it's your eggs that you spend some time money effort and emotional energy thinking about i think it's a tough ask to ask people to donate part of that to get recoup some of your money and i'm glad that molly you had kind of a, such a strong reaction to this paper you know to consider this section is really meant for all of us to consider this and discuss whether or not we think some of these ideas, concepts are are reasonable. Do they have merit? Are they things that are worth exploring? Or start the discussion and be like, no, that's crazy, we should never do that. All right, guys, let's pivot away from talking about egg donation and go back to the other 50% of the equation, the male contribution to reproduction. Blake, you have a great article from FNS Reviews this month that talks a little bit about bariatric surgery and its role in, in male reproduction.
3: Thank you kindly for that segue and introduction, Pietro. I'm going to be discussing the impact of obesity and subsequent weight loss through bariatric surgery on male fertility by Sally Vitez and senior author Kathleen Huang out of Pittsburgh. It is projected, did you all know, by 2030, 86% of all adults in the U.S. will be overweight and over 50% of all adults are predicted to be obese. And as you all probably know, the clinical impact of obesity on individual health is quite immense, and it has increased risk of things such as diabetes, renal disease, cancers, cardiovascular disease, and all-cause mortality, to name a few. There's also growing evidence to support the negative impact of obesity on male factor infertility. This should come as no surprise. However, the effects of doing bariatric surgery and on the sperm parameters afterwards, the data is conflicting. Therefore, these authors uh, of this study do a comprehensive review evaluating current literature published on the impact of obesity and subsequent weight loss on male factor infertility. So, they review the pathophysiology regarding excess adipose tissue and its effects on reproduction. This paper had a really good review of a lot of physiology. I really enjoyed it. It's always nice to go back to the basics and just refresh around a lot of this pathophysiology. But they discuss how when you have excess adipose tissue, it can have pro-inflammatory cytokines, a pro-inflammatory state that has higher reactive oxygen species that are produced, as well as having dysfunction of the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. So as you know, again, just going a little flashback of pathophys here, you have elevated Uh, aromatization to estrogen and therefore suppressing FSH at the hypothalamic pituitary level. And this leads to subsequent decrease in spermatogenesis, which is a problem for patients who are wanting to get pregnant. And they also discuss the role of appetite regulatory protein that we all know called leptin. And leptin can be associated with obese patients. You can have leptin resistance as well as insulin resistance. And this can also lead to a slew of complications that we'll discuss as well. So great news for Daylon, there's another figure in here. You can add to your clinical repertoire, your clinical Rolodex, but I actually, I really like this figure in here. It's a very nice summary. And really this uh, figure one summarizes a lot of the findings of this study. They look at the level of the brain, decreased FSH and LH production like we discussed. So therefore decreased spermatogenesis, decreased testosterone production from the testicles. A lot of adipose tissue is inflammatory, increased cytokines, you have leptin resistance and aromatization, as I mentioned as well. So the gonads have increased scrotal temperature, issues with erectile dysfunction, as we discussed, decreased testosterone, germ cell apoptosis, and sperm function. It can lead to decreased motility, concentration, decreased semen volume, and increased DNA damage, all really bad things. So take a look at that table. It's honestly probably one that I will probably include in my patient counseling slides that I utilize every day. This is really helpful. So they talk about weight loss and its impacts on spermatogenesis as well, semen parameters and fertility outcomes. And so they kind of come through what available data is out there. They discuss a small Danish pilot study from 2011, including 43 obese men. They group them according to their BMI, the highest group being 46 to 61 as their BMI, and the lower BMI being 33 to 41. They had a 14-week weight loss program, with median weight loss being 15% of their BMI, and the range was anywhere from 4 to 25%. The patients that had the largest weight loss had a statistically significant increase in both sperm count and morphology. So with that being said, of course, what if you lose a lot more weight? What if you have bariatric surgery? And so they looked at what data is available. I will just preface with saying there is a uh, paucity of data. There's not very much that's out there that addresses this question, but there is some. So I'm gonna review what the authors have discussed regarding this.
1: Blake, one so, question One question for you, Blake, before you, you tell us a little bit about that. Is there a timeline by which you would see that improvement? Is it seen within days to weeks after bariatric surgery, or do you really need to hit the weight loss and then see the, the effect?
3: Yeah, good question. So you would presume it would be a few months afterwards, as we know the spermatogenesis life cycle, so to speak, is about 90 days from germ cell to ejaculate. And so you would presume from the time you had weight loss, about three months later, what they found was interestingly, not so much the case. When they looked at the the very first study was in, uh, it really wasn't that far along, it was about 2011 and they looked at bariatric surgery and its implications on male infertility. There, there was only three men, obviously a very small study. BMI's range anywhere from 40 to 66. They looked at six-month intervals up to 13 months after your surgery, and they all actually had worsening sperm parameters, contrary to what I, I just mentioned you think they would have improved by then. So they had worsening of their sperm parameters, and two of the three patients, now obviously this is just such a small, in here, but two of the three patients showed recovery of spermatogenesis by 15 and 24 months, but they were able to get pregnant with ART. Obviously, don't have to have a whole lot of sperm with ART, but they were able to get pregnant. And these are men who started with basically azospermia. So because of this paper. This had essentially sparked an increasing attention to the subject. And then they summarize what available data is out there. So table one, really nice summary of what's out there. There are seven studies and they break it down to whether the patients had gastric sleeve, had gastric bypass, some included both. So there was some heterogeneity in these studies. They looked at the basic sperm parameters, the WHO parameters we normally talk about daily, volume, concentration, motility, morphology. They looked at 6 to 12 months after surgery and up to 24 months after surgery compared to the baseline. And spoiler alert, there's really not much of a difference at all, is what they had found. So I'll kind of summarize what they had they had found. One study showed there was a statistically significant increase in volume, whereas another showed there was a statistically significant decrease in volume. One study showed a significant decrease in concentration six months afterwards. But aside from that, none of the studies showed that there was a difference in any of the parameters compared to baseline. So there... Important to think about, though, however, many patients did show improvements in parameters. They showed a trend, but most were not statistically significant. So if you throw a larger sample size into the mix, they very well could, in fact, have statistically significant changes, but a lot larger studies are needed. One important thing to note as well is these studies did not assess for clinical pregnancy rates or live birth rates. So is the improvement in the quality of sperm enhanced after surgery? Is the sperm more easily able to do capacitation, acrosome reaction, pellucida binding? These are things that they don't necessarily look into. The last couple of things that I'll mention, they did look at, there is a single study, an ART outcome study that the authors discussed, and they looked at unexplained infertility patients. So these are patients with overall normal sperm parameters, so unexplained infertility. And their partner had undergone bariatric surgery after they had their first IVF cycle. second cycle was six months after bariatric surgery. And before I state the findings, I want to caution everyone, as I mentioned on a previous podcast, the statistical concept called regression to the mean. So just because you're doing something again, doesn't mean that that is the reason why you got pregnant. You have to have a lot more robust data, a lot more studies, or else just doing it again, and you get pregnant, of course, you're going to say, well, it's because I had bariatric surgery. But So there's the preface there, but the investigators in the study had found a statistically significant increase in the mean numbers of basically everything you would want. Fertilized oocytes, embryos present, high-quality embryos after bariatric surgery, as well as higher implantation rate, higher clinical pregnancy rate, higher live birth rate. Basically, just everything's better. So again, extreme point in caution, regression to the mean is a, a thing that I want all of our listeners to be cautious of. So, in conclusion, the authors discuss how bariatric surgery is a, uh, in a sense, a mainstay of treatment for some obese men, and there are multiple prospective studies that don't show significant difference in WHO sperm parameters. Bariatric surgery in couples with unexplained infertility and an obese male partner that has surgery may be a tool to help improve live birth rates. However, of course, further studies are needed, and the one thing that I again, I want to point out that's important to keep in mind is that even though the sperm parameters are not changing, it is also reassuring knowing that they don't decrease overall. So there's obvious, very real health benefits to having bariatric surgery, aside from just fertility. But at least we can reassure our patients with this study that it is important to be healthier in general, reduce things like all mortality, hypertension, diabetes, you name it, And by the way, what data is available has shown that it does not overall impact your sperm parameters, may possibly improve sperm quality. So that's kind of the takeaway that I get from this paper. So very extremely common and prevalent issue, especially in a region of the country where I am at, a lot of obese patients. So I thought it was a good review though. What do you guys think? Tell me your thoughts.
4: From a research perspective, I think a lot about when we compare first and second cycles, because you lose so many people who didn't get a second cycle because the first cycle went so well. And so it, it tends to be people who didn't do as well as we expected. So we said, hey, let's do one more and tweak some things. It often is going to be better. So just something that we have to think about when we're looking at the literature. I think for counseling, this is great because uh, you might not necessarily refer someone for bariatric surgery and say, come back to me in a year, but if a patient's asking about getting bariatric surgery, I can tell them your sperm parameters will be the same or maybe even better. And in an older patient, I wouldn't delay for bariatric surgery, especially for male infertility, but in a younger patient who, if the couple or the individual said, hey, I really want to take a year or two and focus on uh, my health before pursuing fertility, that might be a reasonable approach. Uh, And then I think the thing that we're all thinking is, can we repeat this review or can we get some studies out there with GLP-1 agonists? And I'd love to see what kind of effects we're seeing, especially with this HPG axis being involved. If we take something that works directly centrally, what are we going to see for sperm parameters?
1: I think bariatric surgery is fundamentally underutilized in reproductive age patients. I know we always talk about well, what do we do with patients who are overweight or obese? Do we put them on a, a plan? Do we do the bariatric surgery? Do we, we delay conception by a few months to work on weight loss? Bariatric surgery definitely delays it longer. We're looking at a 12 month delay before it's recommended for them to conceive. In men, they don't have that delay. In men, you really start to see some of these effects pretty soon. And if we're going to get better, it's it's pretty early. So I think it makes really good sense to be thoughtful about this counseling, make the referrals and not forget about the male contribution to these things. In our patients with ovaries, I still struggle about kind of what the role for it is and when the right time to to prioritize that over reproduction and obviously page, ovarian reserve and kind of those things play a big part of it. But at the end of the day, my wife's an MFM and if I help a patient, the very high BMI and a bunch of comorbidities get pregnant, I'm gonna get the look when I get home. And if I'm not thoughtful about preconception counseling and optimization for pregnancy's sake, not for just getting pregnant's sake, I'm missing out on a huge opportunity.
3: I think one thing that's difficult in our patient populations is usually when they're seeing you, they wanna get pregnant yesterday. And doing something such as weight loss, or it's not just a quick fix, And then you got to wait a long time to even see if sperm recovers. It's just something that is difficult to do. of course, we want the best outcomes for our patients. We want them to be healthy. Uh, Same thing on the maternal side of things, talking to them beforehand about weight loss, but they want to move forward now with treatments and waiting to lose weight, whether it be with via surgery or diet or GLP, one agonist, whatever it may be, it's going to take a long time. And for someone who's Older, you know, a patient who's say late thirties or forties, that's a difficult conversation to be had on on the maternal side of things, but it's a difficult thing for sure. But I, I I do think at least reassuringly that this is showing that there's no adverse outcomes, at least from what we can gather from this data so far. So All
1: right, guys. Well that's all the time we have for today. Thanks, Molly, Dalon, and Blake for the very excellent articles that you guys brought and look forward to our podcast next month until we see each other again blake because again this is a live webcasted video based podcast see you soon
0: this concludes our episode of fertility and sterility on air brought to you by fertility and sterility in conjunction with the american society for reproductive medicine this episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simoni and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect Fertility and Sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.